You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. I have one of these small poles. It's like maybe this tall and really flimsy. And I was like, you can, uh, you know, it just makes fishing more fun sometimes because look, the rod bends like crazy and I just do this. And the thing, without hesitation, snaps in half. In the middle of the aisle at Academy. Like the Academy right over here at Walmart. And uh, first thing, like, I'm like, still, I'm trying to, like, in play it cool mode. And it felt like 30 minutes of processing and trying to figure out how to, you know, play this cool. And, like, oh, I meant to do that. Uh, but it's probably, like, two seconds. All this is going through my mind. The first thing, as I look down, I see I just broke a $70 fishing pole in half. And so really quick, I'm thinking in my mind, how would I play this cool? So I, I just take the pole and I set it back and I go, come on, let's get out of here. Uh, and so we go and uh, we check out with her pole. I walk to the car with her and, uh, and uh, she leaves. I, I went back in, okay, I went back into Academy, grabbed the pole, took it to the customer service. And I was like, yeah, I was looking at uh, fishing poles and I don't know what happened. It just, seeing how, and it just broke and I offered to pay for it. They're like, no, don't worry about it. Um, yeah. Wow, really? Very emotional group in here. Um, so anyways, I, I got my shorts that I went there for, and I get in the car, and I, I drive to Arkansas. And I'm, I'm, I'm leaving there thinking the whole time, dang it, like, this is why. Like, this is why I'm going to be single the rest of my life, because I can't play it cool ever. I had this, like, five, six-hour drive to northwest Arkansas the whole way I'm thinking that. Now, here's why I share, share all that. <laughs> other than just to, like, ruin my life and embarrass myself. The big underlying premise for this whole series that we've been in the past five weeks, now this is week six, is, is the fact that relationships and marriage and sex, they all find their origins in this book right here. They all find their meaning in the Bible, in God's Word. But because I think we've failed to really talk about them like we should in the church, and culture talks about it all the time, we've left the door open for culture to swoop in and, and replace or, or essentially rob those God-given meanings that God's given to marriage and, and relationships and sex and replace it with stuff that God never intended to be there. So the purpose of this series has been to essentially rediscover like why God gave us marriage, why God gave us relationships, why God gave us sex. So in, in so doing, we've really discovered, I feel like, four big truths over the past few weeks. Week one, like starting off Right from the back, Genesis 2, we saw that God gave us relationships for one reason, to help us carry out and complete his mission. Uh, The second week, continuing in Genesis 2, seeing some of this in Ephesians 5, we saw that marriage is the most perfect and clear uh, picture that God's given us to help us understand the gospel. You know, we got some other pictures like communion and baptism, like we saw last week, that are visible explanations, pictures of the gospel. But I think better, better than any of those is marriage. The third week um, we saw as we were moving into Genesis 3, we saw that sex was designed by God to point us to God. And and kind of in conjunction with that, we saw that um, what makes us the most vulnerable to sexual sin is having a second-hand relationship with God, as opposed to a first-hand relationship, kind of like Eve had. And then last week we saw this, that most of us in here, really all of us in here, have baggage. Most of us in here um, carry baggage due to sexual sin from our past or from our present. And, and we saw this last week that God is calling us into an honest confrontation with 
our baggage, an honest confrontation with our sin. But not only is he calling us into an honest confrontation with our baggage, he's also calling us into an honest confrontation with his grace. And what we saw at the end of last week is this, that when our baggage and his grace collides, violently collides together, his grace always wins. Now, we've been talking about relationships the past five weeks, but the reality is pretty much everybody in this room is not yet married. So pretty much everybody in this room is, is single. Most of you are all the way back um, more relating with where we started this whole thing, Genesis 2.18, where Adam was unmarried and seemingly alone in the garden. So tonight, if we were to like stop where we left off last week and, and do something completely different, like if we were to stop the relationship series where we did last week, I, I do think we would have like successfully kind of relayed the foundation and rediscovered the meaning behind marriage, the meaning behind sex, the meaning behind relationships in general, but we would have failed to even visit the thing that most in this room can relate to. We would have failed to, to even talk about, we would, we would have neglected to talk about the one thing that I think everybody in this room, really where most of you are at right now, and that's the topic of singleness. I don't know if y'all realize this, but I'm, I'm 32 years old. I know some of y'all are like, what, really? You're so like young and spry and stuff. And I was thinking like 25, and I know, I appreciate you thinking that, but I'm 32, so I'm halfway to 64. Three years, I'll be halfway to 70. It's really like, I'm going to be dead soon. Um, <laughs> And I'm just telling you, so for, like, for years, I've been doing college ministry for 10 years. And that's how I think, y'all. Uh, and for 10 years, like, I've been doing so many of my college students' weddings. Some of y'all have been doing, like, your weddings are going to be doing your weddings. And, I mean, for all these years, like, I'm standing there officiating their weddings, like, going through the vows with them at the ceremony. And uh, I'm just thinking, man, this is so messed up. Like, these punk kids are 22 years old getting married. And I'm standing here and not married, nothing even, like, in sight or any, you know, it's never going to happen. I'm thinking, uh... And, uh, you know, I'm like, I felt like I was kind of like the bouncer to this super elite exclusive club, club everybody inside is married, uh, and I wasn't even allowed into the club that I was like the bouncer for, you know? Um, but here's the reality. Here's the reality. So many of you in this room have this dream or this plan of, of, of finding your future spouse before you graduate, and, and then by the time you're 25... Uh, you know, being married and already getting started on your family. Uh, but the reality is, for, for many of you, though that's your plan, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, so many of you in this room, like, you, you feel like right now, I, I see this always happens, especially in relationship series. We got girls, like, bringing their boyfriends, you know, to these. Like, you are coming to this, and you're going to sit here, you're going to take notes, and you're going to like it, you know? Uh, there's a few girls, or a few guys that do that with their, no, it's mostly the girls bringing their boyfriends, but... Uh, you know, some of you, you feel like you're sitting next to the guy or the girl that you are going to marry. But here's the reality. What's going to happen for some of you is something's going to happen at some point down the road. Y'all are going to break up. And then this person that you thought you were going to marry, you know, a few months later is going to start dating somebody else. And a few months later, they're going to get engaged to that person, get married to that person, marry the person that you thought you were going to be married to. And you're going to be sitting over here for, you know, however long seeing that play down play out from a distance and thinking, okay, that was supposed to be you, and, and it's not playing out how you thought it was supposed to play out. Some of you are going to be 32, 35, 40, maybe older. Maybe some of you will never get married. <laughs> what did you say? You're like, don't say that. <laughs> Somebody put an arm on her shoulder and just be like, it's going to be okay. I, I, I know some of you girls, like, and maybe this is you, I don't know. Some of you girls, like, you got the Pinterest folder already going. Yeah? 
And uh, it's got all these wedding ceremony decorating. Alma, is that you? You got the ideas? I see you shaking your head. You got those ideas like coming in. But here's the thing. Like some of you, y'all going to have to go to a lot of other people's weddings and see them bust out the ideas from their Pinterest folder before you get to actually bust out the ideas to your Pinterest folder. I got, I'm not going to lie. I got to a point where I hated weddings, even officiating them. Like I enjoyed officiating, but I hated the receptions uh, because I like never failed all these weddings. There would always be like a grandmother who would walk up like, you know, holding her granddaughter, 25, whatever your old granddaughter come up and be like, hey. She's single, and I know you're not married, or just awkward situations. Or some people be like, hey, you know that bridesmaid over there is not married. Or it always end up the reception, you know, like I would end up sitting at some odd table in the back with like some long-lost great aunts and uncles, you know, they're like 85. And uh, man, I just didn't like it. But most everyone in this room is yet to get married. Uh, and, and so here's what that means. Many of you have long seasons ahead of, of singleness. So we've got to talk about this. And we got to talk about this because just as culture has robbed relationships and, lo- and robbed marriage and robbed sex of their original meanings and replaced them with something that God never intended, culture's done the same thing with singleness. And here's what I think is even more frustrating. Uh, because the church, I think, and I'm not saying just like, the, I'm saying like the church in general, especially in our culture, because I think the church has done such a poor job of exegeting scripture, exposing what scripture says on this topic. And really done a poor job of just speaking to this issue in general. Oftentimes the church is who makes you feel like you are, uh, like something's wrong with you if you're single and out of college. I mean, in so many ways I feel like the church is the one guilty of making you feel like you're incomplete if you're single. Or making you feel like you have less to offer the kingdom of God, less to offer the church if you're single. I'm not bitter or anything. Because we don't talk about singleness enough in the church, or in the right way in the church, and culture talks about it all the time, we have allowed culture to successfully rob singleness of its God-given purpose, meaning, and design, and replace it with something that God never intended. So here's what ends up happening. Here's what ends up happening. What ends up happening is so many people spend their single years paralyzed in fear of being single the rest of their life. So many single people spend their single years being paralyzed in fear of being single the rest of their life and and distracted, uh, chasing around, trying to find somebody to marry. Or, Or two, or maybe both at the same time, so many people waste their single years on worthless pursuits. Because culture tells us, man... You know, take those first few years out of college when you're single and, and travel the world, you know. Be adventurous. So here's the goal of tonight. Tonight, as we wrap up the Relationship Goal series, my, my goal, our goal is to recapture God's original purpose and design for singleness. So to do that, we've got to go all the way back to where we started this whole thing in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. I'll give you a second to get there. So go all the, way, all the way back to where we started. Genesis 2.18, it says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, I've said this a lot, um, but I'll say it again. I, I, I feel like we read Scripture too recklessly. I think we read the Bible too carelessly. And so you need to hear what God's saying here 
not what he's not saying. So God doesn't say it's not good to be single and unmarried. God does say it's not good to be alone. Did you hear that? God does not say it's not good to be single and unmarried. God does say it's not good to be alone. Huge difference. And it goes back to what we talked about the very first week. Why does God say it's not good for us to be alone? I mean, ultimately, we saw it's because God is on a mission. He's on a mission to see this planet filled with people worshiping him. And and it was impossible for Adam to accomplish that mission alone. Yes, in order to, to reproduce and fill the planet, it was impossible for Adam to do that alone. But even more importantly, the reason that God says this is because we need the church. It will take, and I'm not talking about the church like, you know, First Baptist Church or whatever church you go to. I'm talking about the capital C church, the body of Christ. We need the church. It will take the collective, cooperative community of the church to carry out and complete God's mission. God gave us relationships, not just marriage relationships, but, but friends and family and the church for one reason, and that's to help us carry out and complete his mission. Now let's take this a little bit further. Um, flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. So a couple weeks ago after Overflow, a student came up. I don't remember who it was. Um, but a student came up and, and was like, hey, you know, you're, you're talking about relationships. You're talking about all the stuff. talking about how it's good to be married. But what do you have to say about where, doesn't Paul say somewhere that it's good to be single and not married? And uh, I told him, all right, come back for the last week of the series because that's what we're going to. We're going to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. It says this. Paul says this. It says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. Paul says something here that seems completely uh, contradicting of what God says in Genesis 2.18. It's not good for man to be alone. Let me, let me read it again. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But here's what I hope we, we see. Uh, by, by chopping this up a little bit tonight, I think what we're going to see is that, that we actually, through this text here, get a great look at what God's real intentions are for our singleness. And we're also going to see him reaffirm uh, what we've already talked about when, when it comes to marriage. So, so go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. So verse, verse 1, it says... Um, it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Some of you guys are like, man, this is dumb. Close the book. Let's get out of here. Um, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with, uh, with a woman. I need to give you a little context here before we go any further. So, so Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians, people in Corinth. Uh, Corinth was like the Las Vegas of their day. They kind of lived by the motto, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, you know, unless it's bacterial or something like that. But um, up to this point in the letter, Paul, he's been addressing, some, uh, he's been addressing some, some really big issues towards the Corinthian church. Now, again, think about this. This is the body of believers living in this Vegas-like city, this really corrupt city. And they were struggling with... The culture bleeding into the church versus the church bleeding into the culture. 
You understand what I'm saying? We talked about, we actually studied 1 Corinthians in 2013. If you want to go back to the podcast, we did like a two-semester study uh, through 1 Corinthians. It was, it was great. I feel like it was really good in depth. But the gist is, Corinth had this strong, immoral culture, and the church was, was kind of in this battle of the culture impacting them more than they were impacting the culture. So Paul has been corresponding with the Corinthian believers. And so in, in 1 Corinthians, he's, he's writing to them, and, uh, and before saying anything else, uh, the first six chapters, he essentially kind of spills some stuff that he really felt like he needed to say to them. He deals with some issues, some serious issues that were happening among the Christians in Corinth. But then you get to chapter 7. Now again, this was part of some correspondence between, uh, between the believers and Paul. And they had been writing him. And in one of the previous letters, they wrote him asking him a bunch of questions. So when you get to chapter 7, Paul begins to answer those questions. Really, most of the rest of the letter is Paul responding uh, to these questions. That's why you see him say in chapter 7, verse 1, now about this that you wrote about. Then chapter 8, he says the same thing. Now about this other issue that you wrote about. And you see that throughout the rest of the letter. So chapter 7, he's starting to respond to a question they have. Now let me just kind of pause here for, for a second and say this. I love this. I love that the Corinthians were asking Paul these questions. Um, I, I love the fact that so many of you, I mean, every week, either right after overflow, you come up, you have questions about what we talked about, or you email me, Facebook me, you know, some way you're asking questions. That is awesome, and I want to encourage that. In fact, it reminds me of Acts chapter 17, where, um, where they describe this group of people called the Bereans, and they would, they would hear the apostles teaching. They would hear these guys teach, and they didn't just say, okay, they said it, so it must be true. It says the Bereans would then go and open up the scriptures and compare what they heard to God's word and make sure that it was actually true. Look, I want to challenge you to be that way. Be like the Bereans. Just because I said, I know I look really trustworthy, I mean, but just because I said it doesn't mean it's true. I am not the plumb line for your life. I'm not the plumb line for truth. This right here is the plumb line. This right here is the stand and the measurement. So as we're studying stuff in here, as you're studying stuff in other Bible studies and other groups, take what you hear, listen, but then compare it to God's Word. So they were essentially asking him these questions. And so 1 Corinthians 7.1, Paul responds. And so he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations uh, with a woman. So the first question the Corinthians asked Paul is essentially, is marriage good or bad? In one way or another, that's essentially what they're asking. Now you have to understand... Uh, the reason why they're asking this question. There was this philosophy going around in the Corinthian culture that essentially said that the soul and the spirit was uh, the only thing that mattered. Uh, there was, this philosophy was essentially saying that um, the, the body was worth nothing. In fact, the body was evil. And so uh, this philosophy had a, the potential to swing people a couple of different ways in their thinking. The, the Corinthians, I'm pretty sure their direction of thinking was the body's evil, therefore we must bring it into subjection and deny it the desires that it has. And so Paul's initial response, uh, verse 1, this, uh, he, he quotes essentially what they're asking or saying. It, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a, with a woman. Then verse 2 he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman uh, her own husband. So essentially he says, yeah, you know, that's, that's fine if you want to think that way. But the truth of the matter is, he says, if y'all don't get married, I don't think y'all can resist the sexual temptations that you're going to face. So he says, get married. But then he kind of goes, goes off on this little rampage, not really a rampage, but he goes off basically identifying all these different groups of people based on their marital status, and then he talks about what they're up against. 
And so verse 3 says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, <clears throat> except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then uh, come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he starts off talking to the married people. And here's essentially what he says. He says, uh, have a lot of sex. Like, have a lot of sex. In fact, he says, the only reason that you should stop having sex is so you can, for a season, devote yourself to prayer, almost like fasting, so you can be fo more focused on whatever, whatever it is you're praying for. But then he says, after that season is up, then go back to having a lot of sex. And, and notice here, everything is between husband and wife. You, he, he's not saying man and woman, he's saying husband and wife. Uh, again, re reaffirming what we've already talked about, and that is marriage is essential to sex. Then you get to verse 8. Um, so, so verse 8 through 16, he kind of goes down the list, and he, and he mentions a few different kinds of people and what they're up against. So, so next he talks to uh, the single people. He says to the single people, stay unmarried if you can control yourself. But then he goes on and he says, verse, verse 9, he says, but let me be honest. Um, not being able to have sex, is it, 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 it's hard. So if you can't control yourself, get married. He essentially says to them, I, I, I don't think a lot of you are going to be able to control yourself, so... So get married. Then he talks to the married people who are tired of their spouse. And uh, he says, you're stuck. <laughs> he says, uh, okay, so you're, you're tired of him? Too bad. You, you, don't, you don't like her? Too bad. You should have thought about that stuff uh, before you said those lifelong vows to each other on your wedding day. So, Leslie, <laughs> go, you're stuck. My wife for life, baby. <laughs> Doesn't matter how much I get on your nerves, you know. I, I want to say this. Uh, so I, I think I already said this. Uh, Sunday was six months for me and Leslie being married. And uh, we didn't even really celebrate. I'm sorry. It was kind of a crazy weekend. But um, I, I do want to say this. Uh, I love my wife so much. And so in six months, yeah, you can woo to that. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> uh, man, in six months, like, it's like I just learned so much more about her, I feel like, every day. And... Uh, I mean, it's so cool to see her pursuing the Lord. Like this morning, got up and was spending some time in the Word in, uh, in, a, in a, a different room in our apartment. And uh, I, I came out um, after being in there for a while, and I see her in the living room. She's got her Bible out, and she's digging into the Word. And I just love the way she pursues uh, Jesus. It's awesome. It challenges me. And I love you, and you're the best. And I can't wait to spend many years with you, so you better get used to it. Uh, but anyways, so he says to the singles, stay unmarried if you can control yourself. But a lot of you, I don't think you're going to be able to control yourself to so get married. Married to those who are married and tired of their spouse. He says, don't you dare get divorced. Uh, ball and chain for life. Y'all are stuck. Uh, then he says to, to the ones that are married to the unbeliever. Now, I, there's two types of people he could be talking to here. One is the ones who like we're believers and chose to marry somebody who didn't know Christ. Uh, there's others that maybe both were not Christians before they got married, then one came to know Christ. Um, now, in that instance, the ones who then came to know Christ, now they're married to an unbeliever, um, he says to them, look, it's, it's going to be tough, but you have to stay with them. Um, you can't get divorced. Don't get divorced. That's not what God wants you to do. It's not, it's not a picture of his love. It's not a picture of the gospel. Um, but to the ones who were believers... 
and married an unbeliever, he essentially says, same thing, you, you can't get divorced. But to them, he, I feel like he says it in a different tone of voice. He basically says, like, you should have known better. And I just want to stop for a second and say, you know, I know some of you, and I know for a fact, some of you in here, you are dating somebody who you know is not a believer. And you've come up with all these ways in your mind to justify why it's okay to date that person. Look, you don't date somebody unless you're considering marrying them. And Scripture is very clear that you shouldn't marry somebody that is not a follower of Christ. And some of you, some of you, you know, you're dating somebody. I see this more with girls towards the guys than guys towards the girls. But so a lot of you girls in here, you're dating a guy who says they're a Christian. Essentially, what that means is when, if it's a long distance relationship, when you're in town, they go to church. You know, when you're not, they don't. Um, or if y'all are not in a long distance relationship, they go to church because you essentially, you know, pull them by the ear to church, or they know that. You know, you're, you're a Christian, you're a God-fearing girl, so you know, they have to go to church to stay with you or whatever. Maybe you've put that ultimatum down. Listen, if that's you, you need to understand what you're getting yourself into. You need to read 1 Corinthians 7, and you need to hear what Paul says. He says, look, if you're married to an unbeliever, uh, you, need to, <laughs> you need to realize that it is not going to be easy. You shouldn't marry an unbeliever, and don't you dare get divorced. That wouldn't be a proper display of God's love. So this whole section... Verse 8 through 16 is kind of funny to me because it's almost like Paul says, you cannot win. It's almost like he says, it's a lose-lose situation. No, if you're single, you can't have sex. Lose. Uh, if you're married, you can have sex. But then, fellas, you've got to learn to live the rest of your life with a woman. And that's not going to be easy. And, and guys, or ladies, if, if you get married, you've got to learn to live the rest of your life with a dude. And uh, they're messy and have gas and other things that aren't easy to live with. Um, and then you get to verse 28. Uh, chapter 7, verse 28. Paul says, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a, if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, he says, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. I mean, if you read all this together, it almost sounds like he's like summing up to the point. It almost sounds like he's summing up to this like really negative perspective of marriage. Like imagine Paul, you know, being a movie script writer today. Like every movie has some sort of romantic theme to it, you know. Of course you got your romance movies, girls, I don't know. What's a what, name a romance movie like? What? Who said Twilight? Oh my gosh. All right, I'm done. Where's Jay Wooden Wag? Y'all need to come up here and lead. I can't do this. Uh, Twilight. Get out of here. What's another uh that's, that's true. Huh? The Notebook. Oh, my gosh, yeah. How many of y'all have cried watching The Notebook? <laughs> She's like, I ain't going to lie. I cried. <laughs> yeah, you got your romance movies. Obviously, they have a romantic theme. But even like your most manly movies, like Braveheart, they got a romantic theme to them. Every movie. Even the best movies in the world, like Dumb and Dumber, have a romantic theme. You know, Lloyd and Harry both chasing after Mary Samson. Not Samson, not uh, Swanson. Um, Anyways, I think if you ever wrote a movie, the, the, the lead romantic relationship would be plagued with misery and captivity. Uh, but it's almost like you look, at, you look at what Paul's saying, and it sounds like he's got this bad taste in his mouth for marriage. So you've got to ask, like, what, wh- why, why is your view of marriage the way that it is? I mean, here's the reality. Paul was most likely married. Now, there, there's, some people think he wasn't, but a lot of people think that he was most likely married because... You know, to be a, he was high up in Jewish society. To be, um, to be a Jewish rabbi, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you you had to be married. 
They took Genesis 1.28 um, very seriously. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They saw that as a marriage command. So, so what happened to his wife? Because he says here he's single. Uh, verse 8, he says he's single. One or two things happened. One is maybe she died. I don't think that's what happened, though. The second thing that happened, the thing that I think is more likely that happened, is, is when, when Paul came to know Christ. Remember, Acts chapter 8, Paul's standing there um, approving of Stephen's murder. Who, Stephen was a believer. Uh, then Acts chapter 9, Jesus radically comes and gets a hold of Paul's life, and he comes to know Christ. What I think probably happened, if Paul was married, is his wife left him after he came to know Christ. So Paul's writing this from that perspective, and he, he goes on to give a bunch of advice about marriage. And out of context, it seems like he's bashing marriage, but he's not. The meat of the message is in what he says in verse, uh, verse 29. I lost my place. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. Look at what he says. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Verse 35, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. The meat of what Paul is saying is this. Time is short. And the fact that time is short, and as he says in Verse 31, the fact that the world is passing away, that should totally and completely change our perspective and how we live. So here's the issue. If you get married, you have at least a piece of your devotion taken away from the Lord, if not most of it. You're no longer able to give Him your undivided attention in a lot of situations. But it's not just marriage that he's talking about here. He's talking about other things like material possessions. He's talking about emotional events that happen in our life. He's talking about anything and everything that grabs our attention and steals it away from the one person who deserves all our attention, and that's Jesus Christ. Time is short. He's trying to help us see that, that the time is short for us to get to know God. Time is short for us to not only know God, but to take Him seriously and to take His Word seriously. Time is short for us to realize our God-given calling to engage in His mission. And time is short for us to actually respond and engage in His mission. I hope you notice it's different. It's totally different to, one, realize you're called to engage in His mission, and then to actually engage in His mission. I think we've got, we got a lot of people in here who know that they're called. Every one of you, if you're a follower of Christ, is called to engage in his mission. I think we've got a lot of people in here who know that, but we also have a lot of people in here, in here who are yet to actually engage in that and respond to that calling. Paul essentially says, I want to urge you to live in undivided devotion to the Lord. 
And a life of undivided devotion is a life that is concerned only about the Lord's affairs, only about his business, his mission. And his mission is this, to see this planet filled with people worshiping him. So bottom line, it all comes down to this. God is on a mission. Therefore, God gave us relationships for one reason, to help us carry out and complete his mission. But not only that, God gave us singleness for one reason, to help us carry out and complete his mission. Go back to verse 35. Verse 35, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is simply reaffirming what we saw week one, if you remember this. Marry someone who compliments you in fulfilling your calling in the mission of God, not someone who pulls you away from it. If you marry somebody who's, who's working against that calling that God's placed on your life, pulling you away from it, then your life will be a constant struggle and you will totally and completely miss out on a life of responding to God's calling. But here's another truth that comes from this. If right now as a single person you're not living with an undivided devotion to Jesus, then it is unlikely that your life as a married person will be any different. Uh, There's a guy named Adoniram Judson. He was born in the late 1700s. In the early 1800s, at the age of 25, he became the first um, foreign missionary from America. And so he left America and went to Burma, Myanmar, Burma, other side of India. Now just picture this, okay, he's 25, like just a few years older than most of you in this room. At 25, he left America to go to Asia in the 1800s. Now, now if we were to do that, it's, it's a big deal, but we're, we're hopping on a plane, flying over there, we're there in you know, 16 to 24 hours, depending on layovers and stuff. For him, he's hopping on a boat, and he's saying goodbye to his family forever. We're talking month-long journey to get there, and likely not having the resources to get back. That's undivided devotion. And as a single man living in undivided devotion to Jesus, before he left, he met a, a woman named Anne Hasseltine, who he totally fell in love with. So in the midst of preparing to leave for Burma, he decided to ask Anne's dad for permission to marry her, and, and so he like was the thing to do back then, he wrote him a letter. And I want to read the letter that he wrote to Anne's dad asking for his permission to marry Anne. He said this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. How's that for starting a letter to... uh... Can you imagine if I started off my conversation with your dad like that? Oh my gosh, he would have probably shot me. So he says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened 
by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Dang. <laughs> so I guess he said yes. So he then wrote a letter to Anne asking her to marry him. Let me read that to you. January 1st, 1811, Tuesday morning. It is with the utmost sincerity and with my whole heart that I wish you, my love, a happy new year. May it be a year in which your walk will be close with God, your frame calm and serene, and the road that leads you to the Lamb, capital L, Lamb, marked with pure light. May it be a year in which you will have more largely the Spirit of Christ be raised above sublunary things and be willing to be disposed of in this world just as God shall please. Some of you girls are like, man, I'd love to have a dude like that. As every moment of the year will bring you near the end of your pilgrimage, may it bring you nearer to God and find you more prepared to hail the messenger of death as a deliverer and a friend. And now, since I've begun to wish, I will go on. You girls are going to love this. May this be the year in which you will change your name, in which you will take a final leave of your relatives and native land, in which you will cross the wild ocean and dwell on the other side of the world among a heathen people. Y'all aren't going to love that part, but the other stuff. <laughs> and then listen to what he says next. I mean, imagine this girl's being propo <clears throat> proposed to like this. What a great change will this year probably affect in our lives. How very different will be our situation and employment. If our lives are preserved and our attempt prospered, we shall next New Year's Day be in India and perhaps wish each other a happy new year in the uncouth dialect of Hindustan or Burma. We shall no more see our kind friends around us or enjoy the conveniences of civilized life or go to the house of God with those that keep holy day. But swarthy countenances will everywhere meet our eye. The jargon of an unknown tongue will assail our ears and we shall witness the assembling of the heathen to celebrate the worship of idol gods. We shall be weary of the world and wish for wings like a dove that we may fly away and be at rest. We shall probably experience seasons when we shall be exceeding Sorrowful even unto death, quoting Jesus there. We shall see many dreary, disconsolate hours and feel a sinking of spirits, anguish of mind, of which now we can form little conception. We shall wish to lie down and die, and that time may soon come. One of us may be unable to sustain the heat of the climate and change of habits, and the other may say with literal truth over the grave, by foreign hands thy dying eyes were closed, by foreign hands thy decent limbs Composed by foreign hands, thy humble grave adorned. But whether we shall be honored and mourned by strangers, God only knows. At least either of us will be certain of one mourner. In view of such scenes, shall we not pray with earnestness, O oh, for an ever overcoming faith? And he goes on from there. So she was crazy, and she said yes. <laughs> they got married February 5th, 1812. Two weeks later, they left for India and eventually went on from there to Burma. In 1826, so 14 years after getting married, Anne died on the mission field after months of disease, stress, and loneliness. And when they had arrived in Burma, there were almost no believers. But when Adoniram Judson eventually died, there were 100 churches and over 8,000 Burmese believers. I share that because I think that's such an incredible picture of what it looks like to be undividedly devoted to Jesus. So I want to ask this question of you. What is it that's keeping you from being undividedly devoted to Jesus? Is it your relationship that you're in right now? Is 
the relationship that you want to be in? For those in the room that are married, is it your marriage? Is it your material possessions? Is it maybe a, an emotional connection that you have to something or to someone? What is it that's keeping you from being undividedly devoted to Jesus? Is it your plans? Is it your ambitions and your goals? Or is it your singleness? Is it the fact that all you dwell on and think about is being alone the rest of your life? Or the fear of it? Listen to Paul's words. Time is short. It's too short not to live totally devoted to Jesus. I'm going to go a little bit rogue here. Um, I want to flip real quick to Acts chapter 1. A couple weeks, my, my home group, we're, we're reading through and studying through Acts right now. And, and the other day, we were going through Acts 1. And as we were going through it, this just hit me. I mean, I've taught through Acts. I've studied this so much, and I just never saw it in this light. But Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel, or restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here's what's happening. The disciples, Jesus has died and he's rose from the dead. He's been there for like 40 days, hanging out with people, um, continuing his work and his mission. And, uh, and right before he ascends into heaven... The disciples are gathered there and they say, okay, is this the time that you're going to finally restore the kingdom to Israel? Like the prophets had, had, had prophesied that God would send somebody, the Messiah, the Christ, that's Jesus. Christ isn't his name. It's a description of who he is. Um, he was the one to come and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And so uh, they ask, like, when are you going to do that? And, and Jesus' response is so significant. He says to them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has chosen by his authority, but... There's that word again, game changer. He says, but here is what you do know. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I think we are so much like the disciples. We have questions just like them. You know, for us, it's not necessarily asking Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Though that should be on our hearts all the time. Our questions are, you know, when are you going to do this in my life? You know, when is this finally going to happen? And in the context of our discussions now, when am I finally going to meet my future spouse? When am I going to get to no longer be single, be married? And let me just tell you what I think Jesus' response to you and to us is. It is not for us to know the times and the seasons that the Father has set by His authority. But, here's what you do know. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, there's two things that are guaranteed. One is, you have received power. And two is, you will be His witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, I, I hate the, the cultural response. And honestly, I hate the, the, oftentimes the response that comes from our cultural Christian friends and even pastors around us when <clears throat> we're asking this question of, you know, I don't want to be single anymore, you know? 
We're saying this, and, 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 and they say things like, hey, you know, your day is going to come, you know. You wait patiently. God's got somebody for you. You don't know that. I mean, seriously, maybe God doesn't. Or I'm sure you'll make a great husband one day. I'm sure you're going to make, you are, hey, you're going to make a great wife to somebody one day. You don't know that. I mean, it's time that we start really exposing what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is, it's not for us to know the times and the seasons that God has set by His own authority. But here's what we do know. If we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And if we have the Holy Spirit, one, we have the Holy Spirit's power, and two, we have the Holy Spirit's call in our life to be His witnesses, to be on mission in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, here's the two things that most single people do. One, they sit there paralyzed in fear of being single the rest of their life, trying to run around, trying to find somebody to marry. Or two, they waste their single years on worthless things, chasing after dreams, chasing after you know, adventure, trying to travel and see the world. But let me tell you the two things that you should do, honestly, whether you're single or not. Two things you should do is, one, if you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, which means you have the Holy Spirit's power. What is that power there for? Well, yeah, I think it's there to help us in engaging in His mission and fulfilling our calling in God's mission, but it's also power there to begin overcoming the flesh, overcoming the old pre-Jesus lifestyle. So in your singleness, begin to learn to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, like, like Coleman was talking about two weeks ago, Galatians 5. Keep in step with the Spirit. Learn to walk in the Spirit. Begin fighting that battle against the flesh. Walk in the power of the Spirit. But the second thing you should do in your singleness is realize that God has called you to engage in His mission. And God gave us relationships for one reason. That's to help us carry out and complete His mission. But God also gave us singleness for one reason. And that too is to help us carry out and complete His mission. Stop wasting your singleness. Look, you only have one life. You only have one life to spend on the Lord. And just look around you. So many people, and sadly, so many people who hold the banner up of Jesus Christ are wasting that one life. I don't want to be 70 Heck, I don't want to be 35 and for whatever reason, maybe laying on my deathbed, whatever age that is, only to realize that I wasted my one life to serve Jesus. And I don't want that for you either. So here's my challenge. You know, there's still over 6,000 unreached people groups or nations on this planet. There's still over 3,000 unengaged and unreached people groups. There's literally people all over this planet who have never heard the good news. And it's not just in other countries. There are people all over our country, in other cities, in our city. But specifically thinking here, there, there are cities all over the U.S. Cities like San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Denver, Washington, D.C., Salt Lake City, Sacramento. I mean, all over the place. Key influential cities that are full of people who don't know Jesus. So I'm going to give you a really unique and just straight up challenge tonight, okay? Here's the challenge. There are, I don't know how many people in here tonight, single people in this room. I want to challenge every single one of you 
I want to challenge every single one of you to spend at least a semester as a single person in another city or another country or on another continent as a missionary. Let me say that again because I don't think you heard what I just said. I want to challenge every single one of you who is unmarried. How many are unmarried in here? Let me see. Raise your hands. Okay. Put them down. I want to challenge every single one of you who is unmarried. If you claim to know Jesus Christ, I want to challenge every one of you who just raised your hand to spend at least a semester in another city in another country or on another continent as a missionary. There's a lot of ways you can do that. Uh, Tonight, uh, Megan Chadwick is here. She's our missions catalyst at our church, and she's going to be at a table in the back. And she can tell you about two specific programs. One is called Hands On Semester Missions. We've had students, in fact, a couple students last spring served in South Asia through the Hands On program. Um, it's a semester-long mission. Uh, it could be another city in the U.S. It could be another country in the world. There's also a program called Journeyman. And after you graduate, you can spend two to three years in another country. We have currently uh, three students that I know, of, three former overflow students that are, one serving in East Asia, two are serving in uh, Southeast Asia. All three are serving in countries that, with a microphone on, podcasted sermon. I can't tell you what countries they're serving in. I want to challenge you to do something like that. But as we close this series, the only way this series was not all a waste is if you come out of it realizing that you cannot waste your singleness. You cannot waste your marriage. And you cannot waste your life. God gave us relationships for one reason. And that's to help us carry out and complete his mission. And ironically, God gives us singleness for the same reason. To help us carry out and complete his mission. I said this earlier. It's one thing to know that you were called to be a part of God's mission. It's another thing altogether to actually engage. My challenge to you is to engage. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.